It sort of prompts a question that I'm continuously surprised that we don't hear, maybe as, as clear of an answer as I want, which is, you know, what type of industrial base are we trying to build? This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat, here with another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, mixing it up a little bit today and bring in Ryan Lewis and going to talk a little bit of perspectives on DIB, on national security innovation base. A little bit around sort of that private capital perspective, sort of what an outside in looks like. Really excited to have you here, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time, brother. Awesome. Thanks for the invite. Heck yeah. So I've had the pleasure to get to know you. Uh, I'm going to assume some folks in the audience haven't. So let's give them a little bit of sort of once over the moon, right? Who is Ryan? How'd you get to where you are? What are you working on now? And then we'll, uh, we'll get weird with it. No, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the invite. I, I read recently, Tyler, that Adults our age, particularly men, need to find new friends. And so this is a great opportunity. Look so, at that. Look Just at this. We're making friends. Help in the community. Yeah. All, we're not getting multiple uh, birds out with one stone. So no, you know, a little bit about me. You know, I, you know, initially by accident, and I think more recently by design, you know, I've, I've found myself supporting the national security community. Uh, and then as a result, kind of rolling along with the ebbs and flows of this industry that I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about today, which I'm excited about, you know, and in the process of, of doing that, you know, I found myself on the side of like as an operator, right, in the in the different tech companies uh, as a researcher, amazingly, which I never thought I would be coming out of grad school. And then ultimately as a, an investor where I am today. And so kind of going back to the beginning, you know, I uh, growing up in Missouri, uh, go Cardinals, by the way, it's a tough season for us, but that's all right. Uh, I found myself kind of longing always to go where the, where the action was, you know, post 9-11 and, and undergrad, you know, perhaps the mantra running through my mind was kind of the opposite of what it was in the old Western times, which was go East, young man, grow up with the country. And, you know, the, the turning point for me, uh, perhaps the, the Saul on the road to Damascus moment was in grad school in Maryland. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Jack Gansler. He was running a research center there. It was called the Center for Public Policy and Private Enterprise. Try to say that five times fast. But for you know anyone who listens right to this show, if you haven't read his books or seen interviews with him, you certainly heard his name. Right for those maybe uh, newer to the show or to the industry that are a little unfamiliar, you know he's kind of an icon in the defense industry and kind of ended his government career serving as the ATNL Acquisition Technology and Logistics under the Clinton administration. And I kid you not, Tyler, my first project uh, right out of the gate, fresh grad student, was helping him as part of, I think, a broader defense sciences board project at the time, analyze the efficacy of alternate contracting mechanisms for innovative tech. And this was almost 15 years ago. So I'm, I'm not making it up. I even went back and looked at some of the- Made a ton of progress. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> I actually looked at it and I was like, oh man, we're still talking. Cyber reform, Ben, Ben Rue, he's right. He's onto something. Uh, but because of him, he was really not just my, my introduction to the industry, uh, but also to really the impact it has, not just 
from a policy or an acquisitions perspective, but all the way down uh, to the individual intelligence analyst or warfighter. And interestingly enough, my second project was, you know, looking at what went wrong with the MRAP uh, procurement and deployment problems. So a lot of these things hit home very quickly. And so from there, you know, I, I started my career out of grad school uh, working for Computer Sciences Corporation. And, you know, it was an interesting collision of two different trends. You know, on one hand, it was kind of the end of the big boom for service contractors uh, uh, coming out of the first kind of phase of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then you combine that with sort of the post tech bubble burst arrival of open source tech into just the economy writ large, but certainly within the national security group. And I'm really referring to sort of the distributed compute and storage boom driven by Cloudera and Hortonworks and others. And so you kind of had the industry at inflection point, uh, ended up running a division there, servicing both law enforcement, national security, uh, and intelligence customers. And that really led me uh, in working with some of those kind of earlier stage or innovative companies uh, to work at IQTEL, right? So I started on the, uh, was there for over seven years, started on the account side, helped them stand up sort of, sort of space and aerospace investing category. And, you know, from there, wanted to dig deeper, right, into uh, the open source group, which was at that time really kind of leading, I would say, or driving a lot of the investments at the analytics layer for those data types. So uh, with a couple of colleagues started uh, one of the first uh, research labs there, we called the Cosmic Works. It was always pronounced Cosmic Q. So moral of the story, do not put me in charge of marketing because I think titles are cool, but we, I will lead you astray to some capacity. Uh, and also started SpaceNet, which was modeled after ImageNet. So we were open sourcing labeled satellite imagery and models. And it was really an eye opener on you know, just the impact that we can have both in our community and out. Because um, I remember by, I think, the third or fourth SpaceNet, you know, we had, I think it was over like 10 million downloads across 82 countries. And I would walk around. I can't say I've ever really been a popular guy. You know, no shame there. Uh, but We're going to change that when this yes, episode drops. Absolutely. Uh, I'd walk around some of the agencies and they'd be like, oh, you're the, are you one of the SpaceNet guys? You know, we use the imagery all the time. And it just, it went to highlight both the impact uh, that small teams could have, but also what this, these broader tech trends were having, both on the data generation side and analytics side. You know, rounded my time out at AQTEL and ended up leading the AIML practice for NatSec at AWS, and, um, which was a great experience right on both, you know, the pain of getting stuff into full prod and deployment uh, for better or for worse. And uh, I'm currently a partner at SRI Ventures uh, which is the corporate venture arm uh, for SRI International. I mean, you've had one of those careers where I think you get to to see all sides, right? The the philosophy, sort of the practical application, and then the intersection of you know private capital, tech, and national security, and sort of the the configuration challenges or the the just lack of configuration uh, or synchronization that occurs. So I'd be really interested. You know, as you look today, right, you've got your sort of venture hat on with, with this sort of competitive, this great sort of set of experience that you've had. You know, you looked out at the dip and you look at sort of the, the conversations we're seeing now around the broader sort of technology innovation base or the national security innovation base and the dip 
And again, sort of contracting reform, tech reform, sort of all of that sort of happening. Though it's a little cyclical, I'd be curious to see, A, sort of are you seeing patterns or are you seeing a, a sort of trend in there? And B, as you look from where we are, right, maybe even like a little bit of a conversation on like, how did it get to be so sort of disaggregated like it is right now? And what do you think that means from a private capital standpoint going forward? Sort of a huge question to open it up with. I like it. We're, we're, start, we're starting lights. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think you, you, in your question, you hit like a key word, Tyler, which is, you know, cyclical, right? And, and perhaps to be a little too glib about it, but if I had to categorize the trends, right, as someone who's kind of watched and participated in the sector all these years, is that like what's old is new again, right? So when we had Top Gun, 35 years later, we got Top Gun 2. It still does well. And, and the reality is, right, is that if you look at, if we want to use Twitter, right, as our guide, which or X, which is always dangerous. But let's say we use that, you know, the certainly both participants in the sector and then some new startups and investors uh, in the last couple of years, right, you know, they the rapid consolidation or ongoing consolidation of, of the DIB uh, has been or has recaptured like the imagination of a lot of people. I think the one of the charts, I think, I think it's from the Aerospace Corporation that kind of shows right consolidation over the last 20 years, I think starting in the 1990s uh, to the present where you, I think you have like somewhere- From, the, the, from the last supper until today. Yeah, 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 from 1993 to the present. And, you know, it's, if you're not familiar with it, I'm sure we have the show notes, but, you know, essentially just shows like 51 companies getting consolidated in, into five. And, you know, when you, you think about that, right, it's if you're not familiar with kind of why that happened and why we are now, you look at the industry and you go, what, what is going on, right? And if you look at sort of the uh, analysis that's coming out of some of these, you know, think tanks that are, you know, looking at how do we accelerate innovation, right, in the DIB and more broadly in the economy, it's almost the inverse. It's like, how do we get more in there, right? And so to figure out the A to B to then B to C, it's kind of worth looking at, you know, how, how we got there to your point, you know, and for those that, that aren't, you know, familiar, like with the sort of last supper, you know, at the time, you know, uh, the SecDef, you know, met with a lot of the leading sort of defense contractors and told them, right, that they're going to continue to face declining budgets. And I think, the key takeaway there was, was that the era of sort of excess capacity, right, to build, and we say that, we mean to build tanks or to build aircraft or to build some sort of mil, uh, uh, ship, right, that was going to go out the window, right, in lieu of a new strategy uh, that was looking for more efficiency, right, in the budget and less on the capacity or the ability more specifically to surge in different combat scenarios. And I think, you know, the, the, maybe the simplest way to put it, is you know what's better, right? Ten weak competitors on a contract or two strong ones? At least as I think that's how the arguments were generally made. And the leadership at the time and the uh, fiscal situation dictated the answer was two, right? And you know why does that matter? Whereas the chart shows and right as it's kind of discussed ad nauseum, right? You now have you know what some may call like the the meta contractors which present, and this was identified as early as the mid eighties, uh, uh, some danger in competition, meaning that they can lock out vendors, right? And if you kind of go deep into it, second tier and third tier vendors, like think of like parts suppliers in the plane, 
I think it gets really crazy when we start talking about software. Um, it's interesting though to highlight though that you know this our industry is rife with contradiction contradictions, right? And so on the other hand, right, even before, so you have this massive consolidation, you know, cost the cost overruns were already extreme in a wide variety of programs, and so this was some may argue a, a very blunt uh, effort, right, to stem a variety of problems. And that sort of produces the current situation we're in, right? And kind of before we get into that, and I'd be really curious on some of your takes uh, here as well, Tyler, is it sort of prompts a question that I'm continuously surprised that we don't hear uh, maybe as as clear of an answer as as I want, which is, you know, what type of industrial base are we trying to build? Right when the consolidation was going on, and this first kind of concept of dual use was was really being battered as a term of battered about as a term of art. Right, it, what it really meant, I love the term. You and I are both uh, economists by training, so I, I can say it to you. This is a safe place. Overhead absorption. I, I just I loved how that was really the term of art. And you know what they really meant was it's like, hey, if you're going to be building, you know, some sort of component, and it's being built by you know, an existing supplier somewhere, why do we need to build a separate supply line? Or why do we need to pay uh, an integrator to go stand something up and do that? That makes sense. But, you know, if you look at the logic behind that, the logic was at that time, here's hot take number one, coming at at you right now. Coming at fast, let's go. All right, here we go. This is a fastball to the extent I can still throw one. Yeah, the logic was, is that in the late or early 90s, right? We did not need surge capacity in our production lines, right? To build platforms, right? Or regardless of their size and cost, right? It's just what we really just needed was our ability to surge in what are now called expendables, which I think because of the Ukraine war, everyone knows we're talking about munitions, right? And other parts. And I guess the thing I, you know, I think about a lot is, you know, given kind of the environment we're currently in, is that still a true assumption? Right, because it, it kind of goes unquestioned, and you know, I find myself on the on the category of it really kind of depends uh, what dual use category you're in, right? Relative to um, how you or what category you're in would really dictate how you respond to that question. I'm curious your take. Yeah, um, great question. I think I turned it on you. I'm sorry about that. No, I, I like <laughs> the lunar reverse card. I. Um, to think at sort of a, a strategic or a philosophical level, right? Like I always look at national security, especially at the div, and I put sort of like, what do I think the legislator sort of lenses? And to me, like it's two things, right? It's not just like the provision of national security, which I think we a lot of folks a lot of times are like, hey, the div exists to you know, affect, advance, pick your pick your sort of action order, national security. It's also a jobs program. Right. It's like a national jobs program. And like there are very real implications to that. And if you start to dissect that and think about, you know, districts and manufacturing plants or port facilities or shipbuilding facilities or services companies and what reelection cycles look like and the incentives that we put on our legislatures, which is effectively like once you win, you're just incentivized to keep sort of winning vice like measurable outcome uh and that is intended to sort of be a dig at how we do legislation Cut um, 
Yeah. So there's a sort of hot take. But then when you bring it down to, to sort of dual use and you look at some of the congressional language around the national security innovation base and adding to that um, and some of the organizations chartered with it, I think there's a there's a huge opportunity for you know either the government to sort of come left in the process with technical design patterns or cloud landing zone, especially for software or manufacturing capacity if they have it. Conversely, I think it is in the best interest of the country for us to have strategic resiliency and redundancy. And I think pretty much every example in history where someone's been like, I have a solution for this and it is one thing and it is ordained and it is glorious and it is perfect, it has never fucking worked. So, you know, we're <laughs> building like the Maginot line of industrial sort of resiliency if we don't, if we don't actually sort of democratize some of that. Yeah, and to add on it, and um, you know, to maybe set uh, some context in the response, and I, I think um, I think some of this got mentioned uh, by James Cross on one of the previous pods. But you know, if there is a, a spectrum uh, of dual use companies, right? So on the maybe on the left hand side, it is that you know overhead absorption company, right? Which is a software company that is you know, doing great across a wide variety of categories and they may or may not have a very healthy public sector business unit or revenue line, you know, throughout the course of a, of a year, right? But it is not something that is, is material to the business, right? So they can kind of jump in and jump out as they see fit. Um, and then on the other hand of this, on the other end of that spectrum, you have something where they're almost almost pure plays, right? In the defense sector with, you know, occasional step outs into, you know, maybe a, a very uh, niche part of a, of a commercial subsegment. So think, you know, generally, right, you'll have like, you know, space or, um, or airborne, specialized airborne systems, right? That fall in this category, right? And, and I think to your, to your point, right? If you particularly think or look at sort of that right-hand side of the market, where in that case, the government is or uh, essentially acts like uh, a monopsony, where they can come in and set market conditions. To your point, it makes sense to be, I think, more clear or perhaps even more prescriptive about what's desired uh, and accept, and I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, um, but accept the provisions where it may not be a very efficient market or even a logical one. You may essentially be subsidizing uh, certain capabilities. I mean, that's hyper, hypersonics for the last, you know, two decades, right? Like we've got to go, we're now starting to get some sort of market traction there, but for forever, hypersonics was subsidized. And some of that with comm spectrum stuff. Yeah. Well, and I even, you know, even think about like, um, you know, particularly in the context of, you know, space resiliency, which is, you know, even a few years ago was not a topic that you and I would have been discussing. You know, it's now not unfathomable to be like, oh, we want to pay and preserve and maintain a alternate PNT capability, right? Or, or, or extra capacity in a remote sensing uh, architecture um, in the event, right? That we have, right, some sort of incident that depreciates what we use right in mainline collection, right? So these are kind of real discussions. And I think it, it's interesting because those types of discussions, I think get often lumped in 
with that other end of the spectrum, which is software. And when you think about it, it's not even really like those two aren't really apples to apples. It's like, like apples to Mako sharks or something. Like it's just, it's not the, <laughs> it's not the same thing. And I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> and you, li- I mean, but you live in this world, right? Like what, what you, what you guys are doing is on the other side where, you know, you want to the extent that it can exist a highly dynamic inner uh, marketplace where you can have companies coming in and coming out ideally, right. As flexible as possible, just given how, just given how much innovation and change occurs, just even within a subcategory of, of, a, of a tech stack. Yeah, I would. I mean, it's, it's interesting you put it that way, sort of the, like permeability of the market, uh, right? Like philosophically, what we want to increase commerce in sort of that defense and national security sort of software spectrum. We think that's from a second front standpoint, from a Tyler standpoint, like my philosophy is we haven't really made that market yet. Right, like I can point at a big TAM and I can give you all these numbers, but there's really no lattice that enables technical commerce to occur. Once we open that, right, like we're in a really potentially market unconstrained sort of scenario where those barriers are removed, folks can come in. I think the challenge you have, and I'd be really curious, sort of hear hear your take on this. You go talk to sort of private capital, and you've got varying sort of degrees of familiarity, right? You've got folks who've been on like an aerospace desk for 20 years, and like they get it in and out. You've got folks who, you know, two months ago were doing straight crypto and like Web3 was going to be the future. <laughs> and now they're like rocking American flag lapel pins. And it's great marketing. And I'm glad they're doing it. But I don't think they understand a lot of the words they're saying. And then I don't understand a lot of the words. I don't think they understand a lot of the words they are then hearing from founders. And what we're doing is potentially sending weird signals, right? Yeah. I've complained often about hey, we hand-wove the complexities of defense and absolved operating teams of the basic sort of blocking and tackling and corporate governance. I think we're now sort of hand-waving defense and national security and either misaligning or you know, incorrectly incentivizing what folks think about exit and maturity and valuation and some of those like core metrics that a founder or an operating team like it's existential to them. I'd be curious to see how you see that on the other side of the table from that sort of VC standpoint. I think you capture well, right? In that it, it, it's interesting, right? Just even across, you know, the R4Co, right? Just the experiences we've had across different boards where it will, um, in one hand, you'll have boards that will look at government revenue, particularly for early stage. So when I say early stage, you know, like a, a pre-seed company or maybe a smaller stage seed company, and you know they're they're very energetic, right? About uh, government projects, right? Because it's a, a great way for the company to prove or modify or build what they're doing, and and build a relationship, uh, which which can be great. Or on the the other end of it, like uh, we'll have some uh, some uh, investors that will look at it and say, "Huh, oh, great, you know, it's a it's a great great addition." and but what are we going to do when we're going to take the product fully out to market? And so it, it kind of becomes this tack on to the business, um, which, which maybe isn't a bad thing, right? It, it, to, to be clear, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just more of when you're starting out a business and you've had multiple people on the show talk about it, you want the business to be clear about some of the decisions they're making and its impact either in the near term or in long term. Uh, for the ability to service, you know, the public sector, I think where 
you see the rubber meet the road, right? In the certainly in the investment perspective, is when you have a little bit later stage companies, um, less like a, like maybe like a really big uh, seed, or certainly in the, the A category, where suddenly the the board and the company are making consequential decisions from a capital allocation perspective about where to put their time and where to put their go to market, and that is where I think you start to see some of the friction where you know, a, let's say a company like one that we've worked with, they, you know, they've gained, they gained very early traction on the federal side. And all of a sudden it goes to, well, why, you know, how are we going to convert this, right? And continue to have very strong growth, right? For the next 12 months. And you're like, well, that's, that, that's just not how this is going to work in the current environment. It doesn't mean that that's the way it should. We're not, we're not, not making that, that statement, but we're not going to be baselined into a PEO in three months. So let's, let's, not, let, let's not talk that way. Let's not pretend that. And I think that's where you'll see some investors that, you know, to your point, the, the group that was maybe trading, trading on crypto and now are in, you know, in this category is an attempt to diversify or in, or in genuine interest. You get into that uh, discussion about, you know, how this sector looks and kind of going back to our spectrum, you know, depend, let's say it's a software play in the example I was giving. Right. Like at least there you can kind of squint and say, like, there there are way there are innovations that are happening, right? Not to pump you guys up too much, but there are there are mechanisms. I was just out in San Francisco this week and you know at the uh, AI conference, you know, and uh, uh, Brian Raymond was up on stage with CDAO, you know, and they were talking about trade wins, right? That is it that is a noteworthy activity um, and in generative category, you know, uh, uh, Project Lima, like all of that are moving in the right direction. So it probably won't yield the revenue I think that investors want, but at least you can kind of, you know, potentially see growth pass. And there are some examples to point to. I think if you're on the other end of that spectrum though, and you're like in a hardware play, you have to have a real conversation with the investors about, or the, with the broader board and the company about, you know, what do we really expect on our growth path? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've heard that term, and I, it's, you know, it, I, I guess it's a, a, a good term. And I think, though, the one thing that may mask is, you know, there's certainly the time component. But then there's also, I think, Tyler, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this time and time again with all the folks you've talked to, there just may be a return expectation point, too. And maybe that's implied in the phrase. Yeah. But I would not look at... Fair those companies and say, you know, you're going to have the same exit profile and growth profile that, you know, some commercial B2C SaaS. Yeah. yeah. But I think part of that too, part of that, like the, the investor and the, the founder or the operator, like you should have that conversation. It's funners. I mean, like when I'm fundraising, it's like the third question I ask, like, all right, what's your horizon look like? What's your return on capital expectation? Like what's your philosophy on like A, B, and C? And it's, we're misaligned, like money's not money, right? Like yeah. you gotta get your fundraising right or your host. I think this is a perfect example of it. You end up with a weird philosophical difference on outcomes or time horizon or scale. And all of a sudden you're in some really weird internal knife flight on the board right now. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think the at least to be to be bullish right on the in the current environment is, you know, I think we've seen a lot of that behavior kind of wash itself out. Right in the market, and it still exists, certainly. But I mean, take, I mean, just take this week, 
right? So you have Joe Larson on stage. You've got, I think there were two other like defense events in and around the Bay Area. You had Tell Showcase uh, out here. And this is all within the span of just a random week where you and I are talking, right? And I think, again, you go wind the clock back. You and I are hanging out 10 years ago, right? And I'm trying to think of what the top movie was in 2013. I should know this. I can't. Whatever. We're watching that movie, whatever it is. Yeah, it was awesome. It was great. Um, Iron Man 2. We're, yeah. we're, really, we're really enjoying that. Um, Marvel's going to be a thing. And, and we just wouldn't have been having that conversation. There wasn't that much, there wasn't that much happening, right? Between the, the, to be you know, somewhat glib, right? Between the two coasts. I agree. And, and so I think that's encouraging. I think the part that remains a little bit of you know, TBD in my mind, um, just personally, as well as you know, from um, just an investing perspective, is, you know, as we continue to have the kind of macroeconomic environment that we're in, and you see somewhat of a compression, right, in the, in the venture asset class, right, is what does that mean for some of these longer term plays, right? And do they become, you know, is there um, eventual, maybe near term consolidation in some of these sub segments that we're talking about on maybe on the further on the right side, a, a dual use or not? It's, it's certainly, I would say, if there's a conversation that we, that I have a lot with both internal as well as, as other investors and founders, it's, it's certainly that right now. I think that's really interesting. And I mean, I think to your point earlier when we opened about sort of the cyclical nature of all of this, I think is you're seeing additional capital sources in and around the market. They seem to sort of be following a cyclical nature that we can map sort of historically, which leads me to the perfect sort of roundup, roundup question here, right? Um, you put that on the T and just hit it 375 down the, down the fairway. That. <laughs> that was art. Uh, you know, we talk about sort of the last supper and the div and consolidation and maybe, you know, sort of the uh, a juxtaposition of economic realities versus supply chain resiliency or scale needs or strategic reserves. So today with sort of this, this innovation base and this emerging sort of private capital driven sort of tech involvement and sort of the challenging sort of nature of still where we are that like we're still doing friggin' you know, contractor or procurement reform or, you know, the, the friggin' security um, ATO process or any of that. And we're all we're still unscrewing all of this shit. We're still printing out proposals and putting them in a binder and dropping them off. Buying tech off of Microsoft Word and PowerPoint. <laughs> so you're king for a day, right? You look across the div, you look across the, the sort of innovation base. What's one thing you change and why? We alluded to it and I, I am reticent to point to a technical, uh, more technical biased response to your, to your answer. But you know, if you look at just the sheer number of companies and, and capital that sit behind a lot of companies you're probably that you're working with or that are, are attempting to get in, whether they're the latest and greatest uh, generative AI company or they're just more broadly in enterprise IT, right? Like the, the barriers, right, to their ability to even access customers in a pilot setting and in a customer space. So there are, I make, I have no illusions that there are not a myriad of contracting or other related issues. But if, you, if the intent is that we learn through doing and that these companies can build some rapport or you have the, some way for a wide variety of government folks to gain access and test tools, if we don't have that, 
um, then a lot of this becomes a moot topic, right? Particularly at the speed in which we're moving. And I, I, uh, I am biased by even in my time at AWS, I would spend so much time right with waiting on ATOs, whether it was some of our stuff or a partner stuff or a cool startup that we had partnered with. And you end up like kind of reverting to the, the mean or arguably maybe the lowest common denominator, which is like, I guess we're building on bare metal. Right. And, and, and the second you go back to that, you're just like, man, we just missed the, we missed the whole, the whole point. So if I, if I were autocrat for a day and I could say, here's an environment where people can deploy in different customer use cases in some sort of trial version. And then that, assuming there's some, you know, acquisition mechanism there, I'll hand wave for a second. You know, it creates a much more dynamic environment for, you know, cool companies gain access to customers. You'll love that answer. You know, we've talked all the time and sort of how do you create technical on-ramps and how do you create sort of an app store storefront that somebody can, can sort of make available, whether it's a marketplace or whether it's just different sort of consumables and just to remove friction out of that process. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I remember like one of the projects, not to pump up a past project, but if we want to, we can put a link to it and show notes if you want to go down memory lane. But I remember we did a, uh, at Cosmic, we did a project where it's called Rare Planes. So we labeled satellite imagery with different types of commercial and military aircraft. And then we had synthetic labels co-registered with it. So you could do all sorts of stuff as the name implies, airplanes. Shout out to, to Jake and the whole team that, that led that. And that data set, Tyler, it still gets used. And, it, and it's not, I mean, it's a great data set. It's great work. Uh, the company we did it with was uh, AI Reverie. They're, they were bought by Meta in 21. But it's not like it can't be beaten or it can't be outdone by another one. And I think often it is done because it's available and people can use it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I would love to see a lot more of that. Uh, so it's not just the exception to the rule, but it's the rule. Yeah, I love it. Ryan, as always, man, I feel like you and I could spend like three days pontificating and philosophizing. And I learn something new every time we get to spend time together. So thank you for taking some time out of your day to uh, to come share with the team here and the and the constituency, the community. Uh, really excited to have you, man. Awesome, really appreciate it. Love the pod, man. Heck yeah! All right, and scene. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.